our deacon this morning had shared a couple of introductory remarks, uh, which I want to comment on. One of them was, is, uh, was that, well, when did I become a believer? People noticed a change in me. And um, for some people, uh, they can point to the moment, the very hour when the Lord illuminated um, them spiritually and they could see Christ. In others, it's kind of a slow process. Um, and you see examples of both in the scriptures. You certainly see that with respect to the um, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. It was that fast for him. But with others, it's kind of slow and difficult to ascertain when that took place. And so I'm going to talk about Abraham this morning in that context um, because he's going to be made reference to here a number of times in John chapter 8 with respect to the uh, Pharisees claiming heritage from him, and that meant something to them, but it means nothing to Christ, and he'll uh, share that with us as we go through this section here. Um, in the hymns we sang this morning, I do appreciate uh, the uh, Oh Great God, that hymn where it says, I was blinded by my sin, I had no ears to hear your voice, and we certainly see that in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8 here, in verse 43 in particular, when the Lord says, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? And as he mentioned also, it's like two different conversations are going on, and they are in the context of one's a spiritual conversation, which is of the Lord, which they cannot hear, and the other one, of course, is a conversation they're having in the flesh, um, using his words as they are fencing with the Lord. They're arguing with him, they're trying to um, refute the things that he's saying, um, which is, of course, absolutely ridiculous. I would never match wits with God. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you. Um, the other hymn we sang about, Just As I Am, in the third uh, verse there, it says, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. I would say that that characterizes Abraham's life, and we're going to see that because I'm going to endeavor to um, kind of review portions of his life because, again, that comes out here in John chapter 8 as Abraham is made reference to as the icon of faith as though that, that means something to the uh, scribes, the Pharisees, and the Jews because he's an icon of faith. Therefore, I am saved because I'm genetically related to him. Of course, that is uh, not true. Um, so, again, I'll pick it up in verse 31, and I'll read from there of John chapter 8. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? 
because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samarian and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, we would ask that you would grant us the light of Christ to see Christ herein. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Um, what we see here, as I'd mentioned in kind of uh, some introductory remarks, is we see children of two different fathers, and that is set before us here in the context of Abraham's spiritual seed versus um, Abraham's physical seed. And so one of the things that we can appreciate in terms of those who have children and can look at their children, they can appreciate that our children both look like us and they act like us. And uh, that can be good and that cannot be good because whatever your proclivities are for sin, you can see that in your children too. And I don't know how you react to it, but it breaks my heart when I see my children do the same sins that I know that I do. And so the children do the things that their parents do. And we see this principle set forth all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And so we're going to take a look at some of these things in Scripture so that we can appreciate, again, this two-parentage, this sense of uh, who you're from and who you behave like. Because, again, Abraham is the icon that is set uh, before us here. Now, back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Lord sets forth his purpose statement about what he intends to do with uh, respect to man. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So it is God's intent to make men, people, in his image and his likeness. And then we see in verse 27 that that's not what God did initially. 
In verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So the purpose statement is I'm going to make somebody, make man in my image and my likeness. They're going to look like me, and they're going to act like me. In verse 27, he didn't do that. He just created man in his image. After the image of God created he them. So he did part of it, which is why when Christ came, you know, he had two eyes, uh, a nose, two ears, and a mouth. That's what we look like. We look like because we are made in his image, not the other way around. People want to make God in their image, but the opposite is true. We are made in the image of God. We look like him. The person who's been regenerated has a heart after God's own heart and will demonstrate some of the characteristics and attributes of God. Only the, That is only true of the regenerated individual. Now, you can appreciate what I'm sharing with you when you flip over to Genesis chapter 5, and we get uh, a detail here with respect to um, people that are of Adam. It says in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 5, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So the children of Abraham, excuse me, the children of Adam, were made or begotten in his image and his likeness. So when you're going through the scriptures, at least in the Old Testament, certainly, you want to see those two words together, image and likeness, because it's indicative that not only do they bear physical characteristics of the individual, but they also bear behavioral characteristics of those individuals. And thus it is true of the saint. In First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord shares with us, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, because we have not yet received our glorified bodies. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's this promise that we will bear further characteristics and attributes of God. When he comes, we'll receive our glorified bodies. And so we read in Romans chapter 8, it only uses one of those words, that we are being conformed to the image of the first begotten of God. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. So as a Christian grows and matures, why they ought to bear more of those characteristics and attributes. It ought to be visibly so that we can see and appreciate that we are indeed being conformed to the image of Christ, who is God. Now you recall in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says that we are partakers of the divine nature. We are certainly not divine, but we are partakers of his nature. So again, as we grow in Christ, we ought to demonstrate the characteristics and attributes of Christ himself. We have a heart, should have a heart, after God's own heart. We ought to desire the things that he desires, love the things that he loves, and eschew the things that he eschews. Pushes away that things that he does not like. Now, we do see a pattern in the scriptures with respect to our experience. And this we see when we can appreciate that in the scriptures, there are oftentimes um, twins born, but not always so. But the first child is typically the child of the flesh. And we see that with respect to Adam. What was his first child? It was Cain. How did Cain behave himself? Like a child of flesh. And we saw that Abel was then born uh, after him. And so he is the child representative of the spirit. First comes the flesh, then comes the spirit. And we see that with respect to Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham is their father. And which one is the child of the flesh? Well, it's Ishmael. Which one is the child of promise? Which one represents the spiritual life? Well, that would be Isaac. Pattern continues with Esau and Jacob. Esau, the child of the flesh. Jacob, the child of the spirit. So this pattern carries itself 
all throughout the scripture, and that's summarized for us in 1 Corinthians 15, sets this pattern for us that we should be able to appreciate in terms of our own walk of life because we are initially born a child of the flesh before we are born again, before we are born above. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'll pick it up in verse, this is in the context of getting a new body. First you have a body that's one of the earth, one that is of the flesh, then you're going to receive a glorified body. But nevertheless, the pattern is here. Big picture, it's true of Adam and true of Christ. I'll pick it up in verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now here's the pattern, verse 46. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthly. And that ought to reflect your walk on this planet. When you were born, you were a child. Quite frankly, you were a child of the, uh, the devil. Uh, and that's what we're going to see with respect to uh, Abraham. First, you behave and you conduct yourself after the flesh. And then you behave yourself, uh, if you're born again, after the spirit. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth earthly. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, the Lord is telling us that was how we conducted ourselves, that is how we behaved ourselves. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. In verse 50, he helps us appreciate something that many spiritual truths hang on. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So we see this pattern that starts out in the lives of every individual. And uh, this is a result, of course, of the fall because we were all in the loins of Adam when he sinned. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses there, talks about our experience uh, in this world before the Lord uh, quickened us and opened up our eyes that we might behold him and indeed believe on him and, and therefore conduct ourselves differently. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, it says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that would be Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. We behaved ourselves like the children of Satan. In times past, walking in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We um, were in bondage to sin. We did the lust of our flesh. We did the lust of our mind. And we were in bondage to Satan. And uh, we read in scriptures about those whom the Lord has regenerated, that he works in us. God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Satan does the same thing with respect to those that are under his dominion. He works in them to will and do of his good pleasure. It says that in verse 2 here. He says that he worketh in the children of disobedience. They are blind to their condition. They are blind to their um, bondage. And they do Satan's will. That's what the scripture says here. That's why we see the world going in the direction that it's going. You have people that are, I'll put this in quotes, well-meaning, but they're actually working towards Satan's end. They are um, promoting his kingdom and his agenda, and that would include um, persecution of Christians. And again, we see that pattern also 
in scriptures as well, where we see Ishmael persecuting um, Isaac. Now, we appreciate the next few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. When we were dead in our sins, incapable of doing anything, had no strength whatsoever to perceive our condition or to remedy our condition, that's when the Lord saved us by grace. He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And so uh, with respect to what we're uh, seeing here in John chapter 8, we should appreciate that in verse 31 and 32, it talks about the Lord making us free. If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. That's kind of a conditional statement. It starts with the word F. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And the way we should perceive that is that's the fruit of your salvation. If the Lord has indeed quickened you, you will continue in his word. And that's going to create a problem as we get further down here around verse 52 and 53 here, they're going to debate with them because they're thinking back to what he said here. But nevertheless, verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Make you free. And that's what we're reading about in, in Ephesians chapter 2. That's what we just read about that. But God, who is rich in mercy, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, that's when he saved us, and that's when he translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light here. And so... If you continue his word, then we see that the fruit of God working in you. But that's not the way they see it. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going to start to argue with him there because they're going to say, well, shoot, I'm surely Abraham kept your word and surely the prophets did, and yet they are dead. They misunderstood what he says. They contradicted him. They changed his words. And they do that twice in here because, again, their mind is not regenerated and they're thinking in the flesh and he's speaking spiritual terms. I'll just point that out to you. In verse 51, he says, they shall never see death. They say, he said, never taste death. He did not say that. He didn't say he wouldn't taste death. Even Christ himself is going to taste death. Not only is he going to taste death, he's going to see death. The term up there, the first one in verse 51, to see death, means that um, you'll have a, a, it's really talking about the second death. You're going to um, have an apprehension of that. You're going to experience that. And the second one, taste death, would just be simply the death of the flesh, um, which everyone except for Enoch, the fourth from God, and, um, oh, come on, Elijah, who was carried up in a chariot of fire, did not taste death, nor did they, they see it. But again, the point is here is they don't understand what he's saying here. Verse 56, um, he says that Abraham saw his day, and they flipped it around and said that, um, he said, you saw Abraham, and you're not even 50 years old. So again, we have this, this disconnect in terms of the conversation as they continue to, as our deacon said, fence with the Lord. So in the following conversation, we can appreciate that the Lord is telling them that the Jews are demonstrating by the f- things that they do. They are demonstrating the characteristics of Satan. They are deceptive. They are trying to trap Jesus. They've tried to take him a number of times, indicating that they are liars. We saw last week, I'd mentioned to you what they did to this woman, is they would murder her to endeavor to trap Christ. Um, so they are murderers. They have tried to take uh, and kill Jesus a number of times. In verse 59, they pick up uh, stones to stone him. 
but they are not successful, nor will they ever be successful until his hour comes, which, of course, is indicative of him going to the cross at the appointed time, and his death will be the manner appointed to by God. It was not appointed that he would be stoned, but rather that he would go to the cross, as is written in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. So they prove themselves by virtue not only of what they say, um, but the things that they do, that they have the characteristics indicating they are spiritual children of the devil. In verse 38, he says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They are doing those things. Verse 41, he says it again, ye do the deeds of your father. They cannot hear him. Verse 43, they cannot hear him, and they cannot believe the truth. That's verse 45. I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. It's as though the Lord is speaking a foreign language to them, as though he's speaking a new tongue to him, which is what the scripture talks about. And that's why, no doubt, when you've been witnessing to your family or speaking to uh, people that you're close to about the things of the kingdom of God, they simply cannot understand it. They have no idea of the, the veracity, the truth of the things that you are sharing with them and how important those things are. They just don't understand it. So in Mark chapter 16, it uses that term, the new tongues. It talks about uh, how those that uh, believe on him, that's verse 17 of Mark 16, it says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. In other words, they're going to speak with a heavenly language. I'm not talking about if you could not speak Spanish but now can speak Spanish, or you could not speak, let's say, French, but you can now speak French. Um, the Bible uh, has that uh, manifestation in the book of Acts. Um, but what he's talking about here is that it's speaking a new language, it's speaking a heavenly language. We will speak the language of God, we will be able to preach the gospel, and those that know the truth, those that God who's at, who have appointed to eternal life, will understand it. They will be able to understand what you are speaking. In order for people to understand that, however, they must be born again. They must be born from above. And that's the language that the Lord sets before us in John chapter 3, which we have already covered. In verse 3 of John chapter 3, the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless God is doing a work in their heart and opens up their heart to the truth, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5 says they cannot enter the kingdom of God. So they're outside and they're blind and they're deaf. The natural man cannot appreciate, apprehend, or understand the, the uh, truths of Scripture. And we've talked about that before with respect to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, about the natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness unto him. Um, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, can open their eyes. We know that in um, Proverbs 20, verse 12, and we tend to... Um, we tend to appreciate this usually in the context of him physically making our bodies, but it's a spiritual truth that's really at view here. In, in Proverbs 20, verse 12, it says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even them both. In other words, in order for you, for anybody, to see the truths of Scripture and to hear from God, God has to open their ears and God has to open their eyes. He's the one who's made the hearing ear 
and the seeing eye. He has made both of them. He's got to open our ears and our eyes so that we can see, so that we can hear, and therefore understand, and then believe. God must regenerate us. He must translate us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He must indeed put you in Christ. And the scripture talks about the regeneration of an individual. Um, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Christ is the one who has to do that. He has to make you free. It's all the work of Christ. Absent that, you can't hear the truth, you can't hear Christ speaking to you, and you cannot see Christ, and you most certainly cannot bear fruit unto the Lord. And God says, you shall know a tree by its fruit, shall know a tree by its fruit. And so that's what we're seeing here in terms of the fruit these individuals are are bearing in terms of the things that they're doing. They're lying, they're endeavoring to kill Christ, they're liars and murderers, they are bearing fruit evil fruit, fruit that is indicative that Satan is their spiritual father. In the Christian and the one who's been regenerated, we ought to see manifestations of the Spirit. We ought to see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And you can see that fruit in Christ as we go through this section here. The fact that he doesn't just have a fire come out of his mouth and nuke these people is indicative of his patience and his long-suffering and his temperance because they are fencing with him, they are uh, arguing with him, and he's patiently answering their questions, affirming the truths of who he is and who they are as well. You ought to be able to see good works in an individual, which we read about in um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it talks about that the Lord hath uh, ordained that we would walk in good works. Um, And so you would expect to see that. You would expect to see that in children of faith. We ought to be speaking with a new tongue, and that would be a gospel language which is understood by the children of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham, those that are of faith, the children of faith. And Galatians chapter 3 sets that before us very clearly about who the children of Abraham are. In verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3, he says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Children of faith are the children of Abraham. And the scripture before, seeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. God preached the gospel in that simple statement. And when did he do that? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he told Abraham, In thee shall all nations be blessed. He's speaking, of course, that through him would come the seed of Christ, who would bless all nations. So I'm sharing that with us so we will appreciate when the gospel was preached to Abraham because when he believed it is another matter altogether. But that's when it was preached to him. Verse 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. It means you're blessed in the same manner that Abraham was blessed with. 
And our deacon read Romans chapter 4 with the intent that we would understand that and that we would appreciate how people um, are saved, how the Lord saves them. And so we saw some verses there which were uh, very important for us to read. The same, the gospel has never changed, nor has the methodology of salvation ever changed from Adam all the way down, and it will continue until the Lord comes um, at the end of all, at the end of the age. Nothing has changed in terms of the way things work here. So God has set this truth before us in Romans chapter 4 that we would understand that the same way that Abraham received faith by imputation is the same way that all people receive it. So in verse 22 of Romans chapter 4, it says, And therefore it, that would be faith, and therefore it, faith, was imputed to him, to Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it, Faith was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the methodology of salvation has never changed, and it has always been the work of Christ to do that. Verse 25, who was delivered, that would be Christ, was delivered because of our offenses or for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who has affected all of this. He is the one who has set us free. He is the one who makes you free. And that's what he's saying in John chapter um, 8, verse um, 32 and 35. He is the one that makes us, us free. And even in this section here in, uh, in John, um, we see this analogy, if you will, with the son versus the servant. In verse 35, it says, The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So we want to appreciate what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, I am the son of God, which they understood him to say back in um, John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, uh, and I say they understood him to say it because they picked up stones to kill him. In John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, says, But then Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making him equal with God. The Greek word for his Father is his own Father. He was saying, I am the Son of God there. And they understood it, which is why they sought to kill him. So what he's sharing with us in John chapter 8 is he bears the authority of the house because he's the Son of God and shall abide in that house forever. And indeed, he shall be the one who makes us free. And Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says that very clearly. He says in uh, Hebrews 3 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, qualifying statement, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Firm unto the end. So this is another statement that talks about how if you uh, persevere unto the end, you know, you, the same shall be saved. Perseverance is a work of Christ, not you. You cannot hang on throughout the course of your life. So this is a statement very much like the one he said up there. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. If you continue to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you continue to have that hope, why then you are a, in his house. And he's the son over his own house. 
So he's affirming here in John chapter 8 that as the Son who abides forever, he has the authority to make people free, uh, but not the servant. The servant does not abide um, forever. Um, Now, what were you made free from? What were you made free from? Well, he has made us free from the punitive requirements of the law. Everybody is under the law, basically from Adam on down. You're under one form of the law or another. God gave them everything to eat in the Garden of Eden except for one thing. That was the only thing you could not do, so they were under a a form of the law. And God has written his law on the hearts of all men. The Ten Commandments are written on the hearts of every man. Everybody knows they shouldn't lie that they shouldn't steal, that they ought not to covet. But most importantly, everybody knows the first commandment, that you shall have no gods before me. Everybody knows that. Romans chapter 1 says that everybody knows that there is a God, and they are without excuse. So that's written on the hearts of every man. So you are free from the punishment um, due for those that, um, that break that law. Um, and therefore, you are free from the condemnation and wrath of God. You are free, since this is in the context of the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, and we're speaking about being freed from the house of bondage. You have been made free from the bondage of the flesh. You've been made free from the bondage of sin. And you've been made free from the bondage of Satan. And been made free from these things, you as a Christian are free to obey God and to walk in loving fellowship with him. We have great liberty in Christ, but we certainly um, are still subject to his rule and his authority, and we ought to have a heart that desires to obey him and to walk in his ways. And he says that here in verse 31, to keep his words. We have freedom to do that. These scribes and Pharisees and Jews, they can't do that. They're in bondage to Satan. They do his will, not the will of the Father. Um, So the things that we do demonstrates the characteristics and attributes of our Heavenly Father, and it should be common to all of God's children, particularly, as it says in John 8, um, Abraham's spiritual children. So just as he's a Christian and we're Christians, we ought to bear similar characteristics. And so in the context of what we read initially in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, being in the image and likeness of God, we ought to see that with respect to all of the Christians. We ought to be able to see Christ in um, our, our uh, brethren in Christ. We should see Christ in them, and we should see that, those characteristics in him. Now here, the Jews talk about they are of Abraham's seed, and that's the, the Greek word there is um, sperma. So they are physically related to him, and therefore they probably physically look like him. They probably bear physical characteristics to him. But it's obvious, as the Lord continues, that they do not act like him. He says that in verse 39. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So he's making a a difference between um, being physically related and yet bearing his characteristics, his spiritual characteristics. So in verse 39 and 40, he says, you're doing things that Abraham did not do. And so in verse 51, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. And so again, if you keep his sayings, that would be indicative that you bear the characteristics of Christ. 
and they are not doing those things. And so they throw the con- what they think is a contradiction. What about the, the prophets? What about Abraham? He's dead, uh, and that must mean that he must not have kept your sayings. But again, they don't apprehend what he's saying. And so the Lord takes them all the way up to verse 56 in John chapter 8 with respect to Abraham. In verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, in order for us to appreciate that statement, because the Lord is characterizing Abraham's entire walk in that one sentence, and it's a very um, accurate statement, but you have to appreciate the Greek grammatical um, import of the language that is used there. The word rejoiced, Abraham rejoiced. Well, that comes from a Greek tense, which means it was not a continuous rejoicing. It was not continuous. And to see my day, and that word in the Greek would be indicative of it was a simple, undefined action. They're not sure when he saw it. Abraham wasn't sure anyway. Um, And it says, and when he saw it and was glad, He saw it at a particular point in time, and at a particular point in time, he was glad. So wrapped up in that that statement is, um, like I said, a summary of Abraham's life that I think is really representative of and reflective of every Christian's walk. As I had uh, mentioned to you in the hymn that we had sung earlier, is that um, we go up and down in terms of our joy in the Lord. Uh, We stumble and fall in sin. We get... um, discouraged um, and um, don't have the faith we should have. We're not as strong in our faith as we we should be. Um, But that is the representative walk. Our faith should grow throughout the course of our Christian life. And you see that with respect to the life of Abraham in particular, because he's set before us as uh, as a man of faith and his wife, excuse me, and his walk represents that. But when we look at the details of his life um, in the book of Genesis, we can see that the Lord gave a very accurate description of his his walk. Um, Just comment about the Lord's answer to them. In verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring himself um, to be God. He's declaring that in him which dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he being God manifest in the flesh, that he is the self-existent, eternal God. Very clear statement there, which they should have understood. It comes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which God described himself to Moses, gave his name to Moses. Again, that Moses would go and tell the Israelite people who he is because he was going to free them from the house of bondage. Christ is there to free them from the house of bondage, the house of sin, the house of Satan, um, and free them from that. So he's identifying himself just as God identified himself to uh, Moses. But now getting back to Abraham's walk, because I think we should appreciate that. He's, li- he's held up to us as the icon of faith that uh, was called by God, you know, just dropped everything he was doing and walked out, not knowing where he was going to go. And it was just a, uh, a stellar walk. Um, but that's not reality. That's not the way it really was. So the first place we should start with respect to Abraham's walk um, comes from Nehemiah chapter 7. Excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. Because Nehemiah here, um, 
inspired by the Lord, wrote what he wrote, and it makes it very clear about what God did. In verse 7 of Nehemiah 9, he says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham. In other words, what we read in Nehemiah there is that God did everything. God chose him, God brought him out, and changed his name. So it wasn't as, um, as simple as God said something to Abraham, and then Abraham believed it and walked in obedience the whole way. That, that, the walk in Genesis does not uh, reflect that. But you see a summary in Romans chapter 4, and Romans chapter 4, and then also in the book of Hebrews, it, it really gives the um, positional walk of an individual in, in Christ. And so in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, it talks about how faithful Abraham was. In verse 17 of Romans chapter 4, it says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. God spoke to Abraham and said, I have made you a father of many nations. That was before he had any children. God is saying it's a done deal. I have made you a father, past tense, of many nations. Before him, God, whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God is saying it's a done deal. That was in Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, which we'll take a look at. But he had not, Isaac had not yet been born there. Speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God, except for falling on his face. I interject that now because we'll get there. <laughs> he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded in that he, which is God, had promised he, God, was all able also to perform. And so we can appreciate here that that's the point where God took him to in his faith, where he did not stagger, where he did not falter, and where he did believe God. But that didn't happen until the end of his Christian walk. It doesn't happen until he offers up his son Isaac. Up until that point... Uh, there was some falling on her face, and there was some staggering, and there was some issues there. Hebrews chapter 11 helps summarize that um, for us also. In Hebrews chapter 11, um, verses 17 through um, 19. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. This is taking us to the pinnacle of his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received, and he that had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence he also received him as a figure. The Lord is sharing with us that what took place with respect to Isaac was a type of resurrection. He received him back from the dead as in a figure. That is the pinnacle of his faith, and that is what is uh, representative of what is written before us in uh, Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11. But let's look at the reality of his walk so that we can identify it with our own 
and appreciate how the Lord works in our life. Now, first we should appreciate in Joshua chapter 24, it describes Terah, Abraham's father, as an idolater. So Abraham was removed, called from, taken out of a house of idolatry. That was his background. In Genesis chapter 12, I shared with us that the God preached to him the gospel in verse 3 when he said, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But he gives him a promise up in verse 2. He gives him a promise. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will make of thee a great nation. How is he going to make of him a great nation? He's going to have to have children. I mean, it's that simple. And if he's going to have to have children, he's going to have to live (laughs) to procreate. Okay? I don't mean to laugh, but I find it kind of humorous. So God calls him out of there. He's made a promise to him that he's going to make a great nation. So let's see if he staggers at the promises. <laughs> so we get over just a few um, verses here, and now he gets into the promised land. He gets into the land of, of Canaan. Verse 7 of Genesis 12, God has given him a promise. Unto thy seed will I give this land. You're going to have children, and I'm going to give him this land here. And then he, uh, in verse 8, um, he continues there. And verse 9, it says, And Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. So what does he do? He goes into the promised land. He walks in the north end of it, and he walks right off the south end of it because he's afraid of the people that are there. In verse 10, there was a famine in the land. I'm afraid I'm going to die, so let's go down to Egypt. Let's leave the promised land and go down into the land of Egypt. And he gets down there, and he knows his wife is attractive. And he's afraid, which I think is a rational fear, that because his wife is attractive, they will take her and kill him. So what does he do? He and Sarah agree to lie. They both agree to this lie that they will say that Sarah is his sister. It's an equivocation. Well, technically she is. Same father, different mother. It's an equivocation, but it's obviously intent to mislead. An equivocation, anything you say, even though it's true, with the intent to mislead, is a lie. So he throws his wife under the bus, and the Egyptians find her very attractive and take her in. But God puts a stop to it because God is faithful And God is going to make Abraham a father of many nations. And in order for that to happen, why? We can't have somebody else lying with Sarah. I have to keep her pure. So the Egyptians, again, put them back out. And so we're going to see this, that this is going to happen to them a number of times. Um, He's afraid. In verse uh, 11 and 13, it says that. And it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, and they shall say, this is his wife, that they will kill me but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Okay, God needs a little help here, so we'll conspire. We'll do a little lying to make sure that nobody um, kills me. So then we move forward to Genesis 15, and God gives him a vision in Genesis 15. So God is continuing to work with Abraham to help buttress his faith. In Genesis 15... Um, We can appreciate that the Lord says to Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? So he does what I think we all might like to do. Prove to me that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And so what does the Lord give to prove it? 
He gives the Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, meaning the world of believers. And that's going to play itself out here in Genesis chapter 15. God's going to have him slay a number of animals. He's going to have him divide them in half. And then God is going to move between them, indicating that God is making, or as the Hebrew says, cutting a covenant with him. But God tells him in verse 3. Now, um, Abraham says, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and one born in my house is mine heir, meaning Eleazar is a servant. Remember what Jesus said, the servant abideth not forever, the son does. So no, the Lord says, and verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now, Abraham has forgotten the basic principle that he's one flesh with his wife. So God is saying, basically, it's coming out of you and Sarah, but he doesn't understand that. He just, all he walks away with, it's going to be my son. I'm going to have a son, um, and that's where it's going to come from. So having received that promise again, uh, we get over to chapter 16, uh, which is 10 years after the original promise. And Sarah's still not pregnant, so Sarah has the idea, well, maybe God needs some help here, and maybe what God meant was uh, just you will have a baby and, and not, not necessarily me too. So she doesn't understand that principle either, so what does she do? She suggests Abraham lie with Hagar, and Hagar immediately becomes pregnant, um, and that has done nothing but cause problems since that day. Uh, but the point is, they're still struggling with the promise of God given back in Genesis chapter 12. Ten years later, they're struggling with the promise. God has come to him, visited him again, and promised him again that, yes, you are going to have um, a, a son. Now, chapter 17. There's been 13 years of silence with God, and this should help us appreciate you need to be patient. God comes to him. He gives him the covenant of circumcision, which the Lord told us in Romans chapter 4 is just a token of the, of the um, uh, it's a token or a sign of the covenant. It is not the covenant. It's a token of the covenant. Christ himself is the covenant. So he says you're going to have a son. And what does God do? Um, verse 16, and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. In other words, Sarah is going to have a child. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So God is coming and reaffirming the promise. And I know you didn't get this, but I'm telling you now, it's going to be from Sarah. And what did Abraham do in verse 17? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old, and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? All right, now how's that for your icon of faith? He falls on his face and he laughs. And Abraham said unto God, in other words, uh, what about Ishmael? Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He's still making an appeal to the works of the flesh, which is what we do until such time as our flesh has been crucified. He's making an appeal to the flesh. Um, so that's how that goes. And he says, no, no, no. I've got plans for Ishmael, but what we have for you in view is a son from you and a son from Sarah. That's going to be the child of promise. So now we get to Genesis 18, which is a short time after that, God comes to him again and tells him that Sarah is going to have a son. That's verse 10 of Genesis 18. I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. Second time he's telling him this. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which behind him. And then it talks about verse 12, and Sarah laughed within herself saying, 
I am waxen old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. So God has come twice to Abraham now and told them, you and Sarah are going to have a child. You and Sarah are both going to have a child. So what follows 18 is Genesis 19, where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wicked behavior. So God, excuse me, so Abraham has received these promises from God. He has seen the righteousness of God and that he's destroyed the wicked behavior of people. And so um, naturally, <laughs> Abraham throws his wife under the bus one more time in Genesis chapter 20 when he goes down and lives um, in Kadesh and Shur. And he introduces his wife to Abimelech in verse 2. She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, Sarah is supposed to have the promised child. Abraham's been told that twice God has visited him, and yet he's still afraid for his life. I mean, if, God, if somebody kills me, then God's promises can't come to fruition. And we do this, too, in our lives. We are afraid that we're not going to get across the Sea of Galilee, though we're in the ship of Christ. We're afraid that we're not going to be able to accomplish whatever work the Lord has set before us because we think it resides in us to do it and not trusting in Christ that he will carry us through the issue. He will get us where we need to go, and he will work in us and through us to do his good pleasure. And so God stops up all the wombs uh, subject to King Abimelech's authority so that Sarah will not get pregnant and has them kick them out of there. And so then Abraham can go about his business. So Genesis chapter 22, we finally get to where um, what is said in Romans and in Hebrews is manifest in the life of Abraham. By now he's walked with the Lord. He's seen that God is faithful, and as the hem says, though I have proved him over and over, as we all do in our own lives, Abraham has certainly done that. Now he gets it and he understands it. He's got his beloved, his only begotten son, Isaac, in whom the Lord says, shall thy seed be called in Isaac. He understands that it's coming through Isaac, that God is faithful, and that if Isaac dies... He'll be resurrected. And that's what we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. If Isaac dies, God's going to bring him back because God has promised the blessing through Isaac. And so as he's fixing to take Isaac up the mountain to um, um, sacrifice him, he says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 22, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and, quote, I and the lad, meaning Isaac, me and Isaac, will go yonder and worship and come again to you. We're going up. He's bringing the sticks with him and the knife to sacrifice him. We're going up together, and we're both coming back. He understands it, and he gets it, that God will have to raise him um, back to life. And so uh, in verse 8, it says, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. And we know how that story plays itself out. The point is, God has taken Abraham to that point in his life where he fully believes the promise of God. He fully trusts in God. And so he sees the work of God, and he looks forward, and he sees the cross. He sees the day of the Lord. And he sees the reconciliation of himself to God, the full reconciliation of himself to God. And he sees that as the exclusive work of God, as indeed all 
God's children should see it as such. And as Abraham and all the Old Testament children of God looked forward by faith to the cross work of Christ, so too do we all now look backwards on the cross. Nothing has changed with respect to the methodology of salvation. It was always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Lord, and he saw it and was glad, and so do I. I rejoiced to see the day of the Lord, and I saw it looking back to the cross as he looked forward, that I am justified by the faith of Christ, which is the gift of God. So a reflection on Abraham's life helps us uh, to appreciate what it means to walk with the Lord, to have this uh, walk of faith that grows as we grow in Christ, that is strengthened as the Lord, um, as we prove the Lord over and over again. He shows himself to be faithful. And Romans 4 sets that before us, this methodology of grace, whereby our sins are not held to our account, they're rather held to Christ's accounts, and his righteousness was imputed to us as well. So we all rejoice to see Jesus' day, and we all saw it, and we're all glad. We can appreciate that Abraham was made free by the Son, just as we all are made free by Christ himself. And what Abraham did is what the Lord tells us to do as he opens up this uh, discourse here. When he describes himself, he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Abraham followed Christ, and indeed all the saints follow Christ, and we shall have that light of life. God himself is light, and in him is life eternal. Amen. Amen.